Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Anna Hunter. I am a physician, I'm a cardiologist, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at ANU this year. You may know me from previous podcasts, and I've certainly spent time here in the studio before. I'm here with Professor Sharon Bessel. Hi, Anna Greta. It's very exciting to be here for what is going to be a great series of podcasts that we're putting together. Absolutely. No, I'm really looking forward to it. Perhaps before we're getting started on today's uh, podcast, there's a special message for our listeners. There is. So for those of you who, who don't know me, but I think I know a lot of you, I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and I head the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. But before we start, I wanted to, to, to share with you some very sad news that we have had earlier this week. Many of our regular pod listeners will know Mark Zanker, who was one of our, our, our Facebook group. He was part of our little pod squad. Mark was so engaged um, in making comments and giving us ideas for the pod and in, in just being part of our community. Mark sadly passed away earlier this week. Um, he was an incredible person. He was such an advocate for social justice and for social change. Um, and he engaged so much with the pod to try to promote those issues and to make us really think about the kinds of questions that we asked. Mark was um, an Australian representative on the UN Commission on International Trade Law and the Legal Committee of the International Maritime Organization. And Mark brought that professional expertise and knowledge to the way he engaged with the pod. But he also brought such a caring nature. And last, the Christmas before last, I remember getting a phone call from Mark, just thanking us for the work we did on the pod, wishing me happy Christmas. And that was just Mark's approach of caring about the people around him. We will miss Mark 
we know that Mark's family and friends will miss him terribly. We wanted to take this moment to thank Mark for his contributions and to let his family and friends know that we're thinking of them at this really sad time. Absolutely. I'm joining uh, you very much in that message, Sharon. Thank you very much for that. And I think Mark would have enjoyed this policy series that we've got uh, ahead. And I think we can see inspiration in his commentary uh, for the work that we'd like to put together. So a couple of weeks ago, Sharon, we were in this studio and we were with John Falzon and we were talking about uh, the budget and what our impression of this federal government's budget was. And we had a range of different topics for discussion on that day. Do you remember what sort of themes we walked away with? I do. I mean, a conversation with John is always fabulous. And so I remember John's comments on the problems of the neoliberal paradigm and that great comment that John always makes about the deafening silence of those who have been excluded. But we started to talk also about a wellbeing economy and what that might mean. And that took us to some really interesting places. Absolutely. So I think around that and on that particular podcast and on many of the ones that you've heard through this uh, forum previously, there is a concern about social justice. There is a concern about caring for society. And that was a dominant theme that emerged, I think, in response uh, to the federal government's budget, which really did not address this. It is time to think differently. And we've got this extraordinary opportunity to to rethink and reimagine the role that economic policy can play in Australia. You and I share interest in really interesting problems. And with my work as the Human Futures Fellow and work with the uh, Commission for the Human Future, we're thinking about uh, catastrophic and existential risks, the sorts of things that have a major impact on large parts of society. Problems like climate change, problems like environmental degradation, problems like war. And what sort of things would you be liking us to, what sort of things would you like us to address during this series? So the work that I do, but I guess what occupies most of my waking hours are issues of of poverty, of multidimensional poverty, of inequality, and how we address some of those really wicked problems. Um, And particularly also how we think about the intergenerational injustice that comes from things like poverty, but also comes from things like climate change and environmental degradation. You know, a lot of my work has been um, with children and trying to understand children's views of some of these really difficult issues. Um, And so, you know, in this context of, of a global pandemic, how do we think about the future and the kinds of future that we are creating for children today. How do we think about addressing some of these really wicked problems? Um, I've said too often this year, it's an extraordinary time to be thinking about the human future. And the more that we look at these complex, interdependent, interrelated problems, problems of poverty, problems of justice, problems of food security, of climate change, and of catastrophic sorts of events that we've been faced with over the course of 2020, the more I'm looking for solutions. And so I've been reading a little bit more about economics. Um, Is economics a tool that we can use, do you think, to solve some of these problems? Well, I think that is the, the big question, isn't it? And I think probably not. I don't think at the moment any one kind of traditional discipline or any one traditional way of thinking 
is going to resolve these really deep problems that we have. You know, we need to think much more creatively and imaginatively. We need to think in a utopian way. What is the future that we want to imagine and how do we get there? So, listeners, Anna Greta and I have staged a takeover of Policy Forum Pod. And we're going to be doing over the next, what do you think, Anna Greta, four or five weeks? Four or five weeks, that sounds good. (laughs) We're going to be doing a series on a well-being economy, but it's going to be moving beyond the economy and economics to addressing some of these issues that we've just been talking about. What are some of the things that you think we should cover? Well, I think we should start with economics because I don't know enough about it. And so it'd be great to talk with to an economist. And I think we've got an extraordinary one lined up for you today. The other sorts I'd like to talk about, health and well-being and what it means and whether economics plays a big relationship in our health and well-being. I'm obviously going to want us to talk about poverty and inequality. Very much looking forward to hearing you speak some more about that. That'd be fantastic. I think we probably need to have climate change in there. Should we talk about climate change? Should we? Should we? Should we talk about climate emergency? I think we should talk about (laughs) climate change. So let's put those three things on the table. Uh, But today, perhaps we can start with some economics. Let's understand what the landscape of the economic environment we're in at the moment might be like. What are the sorts of economic principles that are underpinning uh, the economic policy decisions that are being made? And where are the points of, of, of movement? Where are the points of weakness? Where are the point, points where we can really foster some great debate uh, about our economic policy and how we can solve some of these complex problems? That is an excellent idea. And serendipitously, we have Professor John Quiggan joining us today. John Quiggan is Professor of Economics at the University of Queensland, and he's prominent both as a research economist and as commentator on the Australian economic policy landscape. So he is the ideal person, Anna Greta, to talk through some of these issues with us. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society and of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. He is prolific in his writing on issues from climate change through to employment policy. His latest book is Economics in Two Lessons, Why Markets Work So Well and Why They Can Fail So Badly. So John is the perfect person to come and talk to us about some of these things and, of course, having a Queenslander here the day after the State of Origin and Queensland's win is probably most fitting. Excellent. John, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here today. Uh, Good day. So, John, we're going to ask you to shed some light for us on the kinds of thinking that dominate economics today in Australia, but also globally. Um, And to ask you to talk through with us a a whole range of terms that we very commonly hear, uh, but not everyone necessarily understands the meaning of. But I wanted to begin by asking you to explain to us what are the principles that drive the kinds of economics that dominate policy today, both in Australia and globally? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think it's useful to distinguish between two sorts of bodies of economics. One is uh, the economics done by uh, academic professional economists like, like me, uh, in which uh, uh, welfare economics, and just another word for well-being, plays a, quite a central role. Uh, and then uh, what you might call bank economics, the kind of stuff you see on the TV, uh uh, sometime around the finance news in which somebody explains why the stock market's going up and why it's going down and says stuff about what they call the economy. And those are two uh, two very different things. Uh, they both have some influence, of course, on economic policy, but um, 
uh, most of the time probably that second group has a more direct influence on policy uh, than does uh, the kind of academic economics, the theory of economics, which people like me work on. So, John, I think for, for a lot of our listeners, what they would see most is that second group, what they see on the TV when someone from the Reserve Bank is talking about interest rates, for example, or, you know, the kind of bank yeah. economics that you're talking about. So what are the kinds of principles that underpin that thinking? Well, it's it's um, not exactly uh, principled. So it basically, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of stuff taken for granted, but it's basically um, concerned with the question, how do we get um, market activity going along at more or less the right kind of level? So so certainly the Reserve Bank would be looking at the question of, uh, is the economy, uh, the market economy, uh, got a lot of slack, which means there's high levels of unemployment, or on the contrary, is it growing so rapidly that we're in danger of inflation? Uh, and then... Um, uh, the business side of that would be looking at the question of well, what's happening to uh, what's happening to corporate profits. Uh, are they sustainable? Uh, is the share market going to be strong or weak? So, so it's really about um, managing and and supporting that market sector of the economy, which is is only a part of economic activity. So if we just take this a little bit further, so we're, we're talking a little bit about market economics here, um, and I guess some of the words that we've been hearing a lot of, particularly in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, have been problems with both supply and demand, or maybe the things that we want and the things that we need. Do we need to flesh that out a little bit more to understand some of the principles that are behind uh, our economics? Well, certainly supply and demand are useful concepts, so obviously um, uh People want to uh, consume things. Ultimately, they have to supply something, typically their labour, uh, in return for that. Uh, and then on the other side of the equation uh, are particularly firms which uh, employ people, produce stuff, uh, so they, they, they have a demand for labour and for other inputs and a supply of stuff they, they produce. And, and so uh, those concepts are useful if you're interested, for example, in determining what's going to happen uh, to prices and wages uh, if the demand for some particular good goes up, uh, we expect to see a higher price for that good, which will, will then induce more people to produce it. Oh, no, so, so that defines economic activity. Is that if we're trying to define what economic activity is within for, both for economic policy and for, what, for market activity, is that largely determined by supply and demand or can you have economic activity without it? Well, certainly within, within that particular sector of the economy, that is the market sector, uh, that's basically what's happening. But you've also got a huge amount of economic activity being undertaken uh, in the public sector uh, where uh, demand and supply work very differently, so um, schools, hospitals and so forth, and uh, a lot of economic activity taking place within and between households. And so it's uh, what we see in when people talk about the economy is essentially that, that first bit, the market, what's happening within the market, rather than stuff that's happening outside the market, which is, is a very important part of economic activity. Mm. So it, it strikes me that the market is quite a good place to, uh, to start if we're going to ask the question about growth and economic growth. Could you explain what economic growth is and, and why we need it? I think it's useful to go back to an economy like, like the 20th century economy, which is because things are a bit different now. So uh, in that economy, you had a, a bunch of people producing uh, primary products, uh, yeah, food crops, minerals, uh, fibres and so forth. Another bunch of people turning those in the manufacturing sector and into goods and then another bunch of people uh, making sure that those goods got delivered uh, to households and that's transport, wholesale and retail trade. And essentially uh, 
if the economic growth just means more of all those kinds of things. So um, either the population grows, in which case uh, there are more people doing all those things, or people get better at um, uh, people get better at doing those things. So we so that we get more of all of those kinds of things. So that sort of in that context, growth just means more of everything, more resources being extracted, uh, more stuff going through the uh, more stuff being manufactured. That stuff then being sold uh, uh, sold to final consumers. Uh, all sorts of stuff happening outside that, most obviously in the environment, uh, and stuff that doesn't really fit into it. Uh, in particular, most things to do with information and services don't fit uh, nearly so neatly into that story. So that when we look at uh, at what's happening now, uh, what we see is something that doesn't fit nearly so neatly into a concept of growth. Some things are accelerating very rapidly. You know, for example, the computer technology we're using uh, to record this podcast, while other things aren't really growing, aren't really growing at all, aren't really changing very much. So, so growth is a concept uh, which really relies on a on a particular kind of economy that uh, that no longer really exists. John, you you use the term the 20th century economy and you kind of look back to that, which is very disturbing because it makes me feel rather ancient. But it's so interesting to think about us moving from a 20th century economy into a 21st century economy. And can you characterise for us in a little bit more detail what that 21st century economy is starting to look like? And I guess the second part of that question, do... Is a neoliberal paradigm still dominant or have we moved into a different paradigm in, in this century? So uh, taking the first question, um, what we see is an economy that's um, in which uh, probably less than half of people's jobs can be thought of as basically tied up with this business of producing goods and living in households. And the other half uh, are involved in services and an increasingly large share of those uh, in information. And information doesn't fit into this picture very well. You can't hold it. You can't pick it up. Uh, if you look at a lot of nostalgic talk about the 20th century economy, they say, you know, I want something I can drop on my foot. And pretty clearly uh, a podcast isn't something like that, for example. So, uh, and it has information has the characteristic, uh, what economists call the public good, that uh, more information for me doesn't mean less information for you. And that's obviously very different from... Uh, from physical goods, if I have a loaf of bread, you can't have that loaf of bread. Uh, so that's, I think, um, uh, the developing feature of the economy, and particularly notable in the market economy, that uh, nearly all the uh, most valuable firms in the economy now are associated with that information sector, whereas even 10 or 20 years ago, they were largely associated with resources. So if you take a company like ExxonMobil, uh, an oil company, it was the most valuable company in the U.S., probably in the world 20 years ago, and now it's barely in the top 50, uh, whereas the top companies are, are Google, uh, so Alphabet owns Google, so Alphabet, uh, Facebook, Apple and Microsoft and so forth. Uh, so that, that that change has happened very radically, very rapidly. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, neoliberalism is, is uh, an ideology which arose in the late 20th century, part in relation, response to a complicated history, and has really uh, has really fallen over fairly thoroughly, uh, particularly in the wake of the global financial crisis. Until the global financial crisis, uh, the idea that the way we we made our way to prosperity was to put all our affairs in the hands of financial markets. You know, the kind of bank economists I mentioned early on, 
that they would invest capital wisely and produce um, growing prosperity for everybody. Hardly anybody on either the right or the left really believes that. On the other hand, um, uh, there is no well-worked-out solution sitting out there. That's why people are, are thinking about ideas like wellbeing economy is uh, there isn't a ready-made alternative waiting to be delivered. John, what we've we've seen some debates around is into the, the 21st century and the 21st century economies, the financialization of information and also the financialization of services and the financialization of, of care. Um, and in Australia, I guess we see some of that around the debates currently with aged care and where those kinds of care services have become for profit. What's your thinking on, on those kinds of trends that we've seen towards the financial financialization um, of things that uh, it may be very difficult to put a financial value on or to make for profit? Sure. Well, obviously, um, that's a, a central feature of neoliberalism and something which um, really became dominant, uh, over the, particularly in the 1990s, um, uh, microeconomic reform, not using the word reform to mean change for the better, but what we saw was a notion that uh, that the uh, bureaucracies and not-for-profit agencies which had delivered these services uh, were inefficient and bloated and what we needed was uh, more competition and choice for consumers. We, we recast uh, recast people from being students and patients and these kinds of things to being customers, uh, that if we had more, that what they wanted was more choice and the way to give them more choice at lower costs was to have competition between providers. And we're seeing, I think, um, over the last decade uh, in Australia, but also elsewhere, a pretty strong reaction against that, uh, aged care being uh, the most recent area. But before that, of course, we had uh, a huge uh, a huge crisis in vocational education, which uh, was uh, a major disaster area. And we're seeing similar concerns about for-profit provision of childcare. Uh, so, uh, so we're seeing, I think, an experiment which is already seen as failing by, by most people, uh, even the defenders are saying, well, uh, we can see there are big problems, but we're confident we can fix them up if we just have better regulation and so forth. So the kind of enthusiasm for uh, financialization, even in the policy elite, has diminished a lot, I think. On the other hand, um, uh, the process so far has, of course, created some big and powerful influential interests who are defending their corner as vigorously as they can. And so uh, so reversing that process is proving very difficult. Yeah, um, it's a really interesting point. And I, I just, it just makes me wonder about uh, the phrase uh, rational economic behaviour. And so how much it underpins the sorts of economic policy decision-making we make and how important it is in that conversation we've just had about the role of the financialization of the care, care environment. A good question. I mean, I mean, rational can mean almost anything and I could go on at <laughs> great length about that. But, um, but certainly what it... Um, uh, certainly uh, uh, the implications I've mentioned in these contexts is that, um, is that uh, consumers uh, in the market will, will determine uh, good outcomes uh, rather than, um, rather than you know, other rational principles, rational design, for example, uh, which would say that what we want to do is work out the best way of doing this thing and do it, um, uh, that's a different kind of rationality. The rationality of the market is to say, let's uh, uh, let's set prices on things and see how the market works things out. Now, both of those have their place. The market is a very powerful mechanism, so I don't want to I don't want to run that down too much. Uh, and um, 
and uh, uh, so so we but we are certainly seeing I think a retreat of of the idea of of markets as the arbiters of rationality. How, how much is it assumed within that sort of a system that people have access to a, to an equitable amount of information? There, there seems to be assumptions within that uh, that consumers and markets make decisions that they're making it on the basis of good access to good information. Yes, I mean, so information is is I think the big issue, and I think we're seeing um, from you know, a relatively simple minded version of the fact that we assume people have preferences and they know what they are and they'll just exercise them. Uh, to um, more sophisticated treatments of information, uh, in particular the point that, of course, um, uh, market participants have a pretty big incentive to put false information out there. And so, um, uh, so yeah, in a sense, uh, the majority of advertising is either uninformative or misinformative, and obviously that creates big problems if you have a model uh, relying on uh, market messages, including advertising, to drive consumer choice. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think what we see is uh, uh, that there's been something of a retreat from that idea and acceptance that really uh, for the kinds of choices of services we've been talking about, uh, that the idea that we can rely on the choice of well-informed consumers, I think, is 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 being reevaluated. Perhaps it, it is a good question for us to carry through uh, in the series of conversations that we're planning here. Um, it probably leads quite nicely then into a, a question about well-being and happiness. And, and you mentioned certainly that well-being is an important part of how, how your economic work is in, in an academic sphere. But how do we measure and how do we assess issues to do with human well-being and happiness within the dominant economic model? The dominant economic model most of the time says, um, at first has a strong view of let people decide for themselves, which we've already been already discussed, uh, it works uh, fairly well in the context of um, uh, fairly con- well in the context of market choices. I think the question of well, how do we assess people's happiness? Uh, otherwise, uh, is one which economists have been grappling for a long time. I and mean, there are a bunch of uh, techniques that people use. Uh, essentially, essentially, roughly speaking, asking people and saying, "Well, would you rather have this or that? Would you rather have, uh, for example, uh, a?" Um, a tax cut or, or money spent on the environment, those are the kinds of questions you can ask hypothetically and, of course, they're also asked uh, in political context. So uh, that's another way of, of making those kinds of choices. Uh, there's quite a big body of literature which tries to assess happiness directly by asking people how happy are you on a scale of 0 to 10. I don't myself find that super appealing, but, but a lot of people have put a lot of work into it. John, I'm I'm interested to hear your thinking on those kinds of questions that ask people about uh, their preferences or the trade-offs. So would you rather have a a tax cut and more money in your pocket or or would you rather have money put into the environment? It it always seems to me that we're putting people into um, almost impossible choice situations when we ask them to prioritise two things that may they may feel are both critically important – or that they might not care less about, you know, depending on the the individual. Um, what does that kind of prioritisation give us in terms of information? Do you think that that does give us useful information on which to gauge people's preferences or happiness, or or is it is it somewhat flawed because it depends so much on the the moment in time when that individual is asked? Well, certainly, I don't think it's it gives a hundred percent reliable information. I think it. I think. Uh, Particularly when you're choosing between different bundles of attributes, so um, uh, so for example, uh, you look at um, 
look at you know, environmental preservation in the area I've worked on, you can work out whether people, for example, care about uh, more national parks and open spaces or, or more threatened species. These are things that, in some sense, um, uh, you know, you can have different kinds of policies. One, one you sort of hand policy over to biodiversity experts and they preserve biodiversity. Uh, others will give you different kinds of stories. So uh, I don't think any of this is reliable. I don't think there's any perfect reliable mechanism. I mean, the uh, historic thing has been it gets slugged out in the political sphere and ultimately that's going to be the solution. But um, uh, but certainly I think you can get some useful information from these kinds of exercises. John, I think this might be a good point for us and our listeners to take a very short break. Um, we will be back in just a moment to go a little deeper into some of these ideas. So don't go away. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back to this fabulous conversation that we are having with Professor John Quiggan. John, you have written and positioned yourself within a capability approach. Uh, this is a concept that will be familiar, I am sure, to many of our listeners, but probably completely new to, to some. Um, a capability of approach um, is a way of thinking that became very influential in the last decades of the 20th century, led by the work of Professor Amartya Sen, and really starts to shift the paradigm in terms of, of of what we value. We start to see growth as a means to an end and we start to think much more about how we can ensure that people are able to um, make choices and to choose a life that they have reason to value. So, John, can I ask you how much a capability approach has really shifted um, our way of thinking and how much it's and how much it has influenced um, thinking around economics and the role of the economy in particular? Well, um, I'm most familiar and a lot of the use has been within the, uh, within the health sphere. And, um, of course, it's, well, it's useful to start with the point that um, uh, if you look at you know, the business economists, the people we see on the TV that I mentioned, they're looking at GDP and health status doesn't appear anywhere, anywhere in GDP because certainly not directly because it's not part of what's traded in the market. It appears indirectly in the sense of if people are incapable of working, uh, that reduces GDP. And, of course, uh, health spending appears as part of GDP uh, but, but uh, tends to be treated as a cost on the economy rather than as, uh, as something which is essential to our well-being. So that's, I'll put those groups aside to a moment and say, well, 
historically what the mainstream approach has been has been to look at uh, look at this more or less in the way that you would look at it as a consumer good. So you could ask somebody, for example, um, we've got uh, you know, somebody with uh, cataracts, for example, we've got this eye operation, uh, it will give you better vision, uh, but there's a certain risk that the operation might kill you. Uh, which would you, uh, uh, do you think you'd like to go ahead with the operation or not? And, and from that, you can make an inference as to how much uh, the improvement in quality of life from having um, better sight you value against the risk of risk of an earlier earlier death, and so that approach, based on what's called quality adjusted life years, has had a um, had a big influence, and it's certainly come up, um, for example, in the context of the debate about uh, what to do about the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, what capabilities approach says is rather than looking at um, looking at your health status as a sort of bundle of consumption, you look at the question, uh, what what can you do, and so. Um, so, for example, rather than looking at the question of, uh, to give a different example, of, you know, what, how would you trade off a hip replacement against um, against some other potential treatment uh, uh, that might extend extend your life? You look at the question: Well, you want a hip replacement? Why? In order that you can get from point A to point B, uh, and so you look at the question: What are the functionings, the capabilities that are available to you? Uh, how do they relate to your capacity to take part in the society and so forth? And so it, um, you move away from this notion of, of a bundle of consumer goods uh, to the question, well, what is the capabilities that those goods, goods produce? Uh, and that is significantly determined, for example, by your uh, interaction with society. And economists have sort of always known this. Um, back in the 18th century, Adam Smith was saying, well, you don't really need a linen shirt. That was what people had. But in our society, uh, you'd be ashamed to go out without one and therefore you need that shirt in order to be able to walk the streets and not have people uh, recognise you as as somebody who is destitute. And so, so this idea that uh, that you value the good not in, intrinsically in itself, but for what how enables you to participate in society in your life. Uh, has a long history, but but Sen is certainly the person who's developed it most. It is a really interesting question, particularly in the health sphere, and I'm a uh, cardiologist for my sins. Uh, In health economics, we think often about activity and a lot of the Mm. economic drive in the health health sphere, um, in our healthcare sector, is around doing things uh, and and the functional focus is is a more Mm. challenging way for us to look uh, at at the patient care outcome. Uh, But it really does have a tremendous amount of of, potential Potential benefits, particularly in terms of quality of life. Uh, so, translating, uh, in fact, it's a really good example of translating it from a traditional economic model, where where growth and activity, consumptogenic activity, particularly, or a consumptogenic system, uh, is the mainstay of the financial underpinning of the health mm. sector. Whereas the well-being approach might be, let's not actually, let's not generate that that economic activity. Let's let's focus on the functional outcome from a person in their life. Um, and so the economics of that dynamic uh, can can play out in an interesting way in a marketplace environment for healthcare. Yes, that's right. I mean, obviously, um, the the notion of focusing on, on economic activity gets problematic once you get outside the sphere where people are buying and selling goods on a regular basis. And so. Um, uh, so fairly clearly, for example, uh, if we get everybody uh, getting fit, going out for morning walks and all the things they should do, um, and that means less heart surgeries, well, clearly, uh, clearly that's a good thing, um, uh, even though uh, its implications for 
uh, GDP for market activity that will, of course, depend very much on how the society is organised. If you have a largely for-profit healthcare sector, uh, then definitely people being healthier means them consuming less health services, there's less activity there. Uh, If you have a, uh, as as we do, a a system where it's uh, publicly funded and significantly rationed, uh, then what that means is uh, resources can be diverted from um, uh, from heart surgery to possibly other kinds of uh, other kinds of interventions, which will, will yield more benefits in terms of health. So there's uh, a clear benefit there. It's a, that's a really interesting discussion. I think it'll be one we'll pick up uh, later down the, the track in the series. John, where um, I think that's a, a really powerful example of thinking about how a capability approach may lead us to think a little differently about. Uh, the place of human beings and um, where they fit in terms of demand for, for services and, and, and the market. But I'm wondering about the place of the environment and how thinking from a capability perspective uh, might change the way we position the environment and may influence the way we deal with really crucial issues like the climate emergency that we're facing. D- does a capability approach give us something there, give us a new way of thinking? That's a good question. I mean, I, I haven't really thought about much before. And I mean, one of the features of a capability approach is it's essentially uh, essentially very human-centred. Um, uh, so I... I it may be, in fact, that um, uh, that we can uh, get more from uh, a traditional mainstream economics point of view, which which looks at notions of uh, of externalities. Says, well, you know, it, it certainly gives you a very straightforward uh, account of what we need to do about why we should reduce CO two emissions, because essentially uh, my emissions harm you, and vice versa, and also gives us a, a, a fairly well developed set of tools tools to deal with it. Uh, which unfortunately have run into um, uh, run into lots of uh, uh, lots of uh, political opposition from people who you would think ought to support markets. So, uh, uh, so you know, although uh, when you look at the Economist on the TV, it sounds as though uh, the economy and the environment are, are in some sense uh, uh, opposed entities. Uh, in mainstream economics, the environment, sustaining the environment, is certainly a key part of welfare. And there's a very well-developed body of theory that says what we should do, which, in which uh, economists have sadly had very little influence in actually getting that into the policy process. Mm. I wonder whether the co-benefits for action on climate change, the sorts of things like improving active transport and changing nutrition, uh, in fact fits within a capability approach uh, of economics where we do see the individual health improve by acting on climate change. Well, certainly certainly there are there are co-benefits. I mean, I don't want – you shouldn't always count them go, going, going mm. the right way, I guess. No. Um, um, yeah, for example, when we look at the um, – at the pandemic, I mean, in many ways, um, something like remote working has has co benefits um, in terms of the environment. But um, uh, on the other hand, uh, the decline in use of public transport is going to be a major problem. So sometimes you get those co benefits, and sometimes not. So this probably brings us on to work, which is another very interesting topic uh, in this economic mix. You've argued, I think, for a universal basic income, and in fact, your recent uh, policy statement uh, from the Crawford School here on the livable income guarantee makes really interesting reading. Perhaps you could take us through the ideas behind that. Well, I should say um, there's a bunch of a bunch of ideas that come under this label, and they depend a lot on whether you focus on the universal part or the basic part. So, 
People to focus on the universal part, so let's just give everybody enough money to live on and then we'll get it back from those who don't need it through the tax system. Uh, that's uh, simple and appealing, but turns out to be much more difficult when you actually uh, look at the implementation. Uh, people to focus on basic, say let's get rid of the obstacles that mean that significant numbers of people don't have enough to, to live on. And there's really a couple of components of that. One is... Uh, raising existing benefits um, like the unemployment benefit, which is currently job seeker but has had many different names, uh, raising that to a level comparable to the old age pension, which is, is broadly speaking sufficient to live on. Uh, but the other is broadening the definition of the kinds of things that would allow you to get support from the public, so uh, including voluntary work, artistic and creative activity, uh, expanding eligibility for full-time students, a range of a range of options which currently are are subject to very strict and punitive regulation. Uh, so that's uh, uh, that's the version of the idea which um, uh, uh, which uh, Alice Klein and I and uh, Tim Dunlop and others have been have put forward through the Crawford School, and uh, it fits into a, a view that uh, we haven't taken enough of the benefits of technological change, technological progress, in terms of. Uh, increased freedom to pursue our own projects. So, um, uh, so for example, we haven't had a reduction in working hours, in standard working hours, for nearly 40 years, whereas for the previous century and a half, that was a major part of progress, was reducing standard working hours. Uh, we've seen uh, the intensity of work fluctuate, but certainly um, uh, in the 1990s and then again with the rise of the gig economy uh, accelerating rather than... Um, Rather than diminishing, which was what we would expect if we had, uh, if we had better technology, we ought to be able to make work uh, more pleasant and and less stressful. But but that's far from being the case, uh, particularly in the context of the gig economy. John, I I wanted to to ask you how we we, we might think about not only. Uh, basic income, recognising that income is fundamentally important. And I, I think back to the mm. comment you made about Adam Smith's linen shirt and you know, having sufficient income to live, um, to participate in society, as Peter Townsend would say, but, but also to, to kind of live a life with dignity where you're not in shame, living in shame and stigma, I think remains fundamentally important and income is central to that. But I'm interested in your thinking about the provision of universal basic services um, in a 21st century context. And I'll preface this by saying I, I do a lot of work around multidimensional poverty, particularly in the global south. And what we see there often is that small increases in people's income will make a difference to their lives. But the poor quality um, of services that are available to the poor often mean that those small increases of income are not sufficient to change people's um, life prospects and the quality of services that they, they are able to access remain very, very low. So I'm really keen to to hear your thinking around um, the, the, the place of basic services or perhaps universal basic services that are of a high quality um, in current thinking about how we resolve problems of, of poverty and inequality? Sure. Well, I think, I mean, there's, I mean, a complicated set of visions, but basically the evidence has been that typically what we call human services, health, education, a whole range of related services are best provided on a universal access and, um, and not-for-profit basis. And uh, we've seen, I think we, we've already discussed this a bit, but we've seen the failures of for-profit vision in these areas. Uh, 
working out uh, and then uh, we'll obviously want to get those at a quality which is uh, uh, which makes sense uh, relative to the um, the quality and, and abundance of private goods uh, and so yeah, you can go back uh, for one version of the balance to J.K. Galbraith, who talked about uh, private affluence and public squalor, that uh, if you don't fund those services adequately, you have a situation where people have a very high material standard of living uh, but suffer from the inadequacy of a wide range of services. And certainly you could make the case that that's uh, still very much the case in large parts of the United States today. There's no easy way of laying down the law, but I think I think that that idea is, is clear. Uh, and... The point about quality is is important that these are services in which we typically don't think, look, people have radically different consumer preferences. Uh, they basically want good quality health yeah, healthcare, for example. I don't have, uh, I don't want a particular kind of healthcare. I want the best healthcare for my condition. And that I think is, uh, and similarly with, with things like aged care, that um, uh, our, our basic concern is getting a good quality of service, not in having a wide range of choices available to us. And that's very different from other things, even basic needs like food. Pretty clearly, in the case of food, I wouldn't want uh, a government nutritionist saying, well, look, we've worked out what the best diet for you is and it'll be delivered to your door. I want to be able to go to the supermarket or go to the supermarket website and say, I'd like these are the things I would like. And so uh, that, brain, yeah, that, that sphere in which consumer choice is important remains large, Roughly speaking, but not entirely, yeah, that maps into that division between goods and uh, particularly human services. Oh, that's a, a really great place for us to move into the last question for today's uh, session. How optimistic are you that the coronavirus pandemic might give us a window for change? So we're in an extraordinary moment in time, uh, a time where things that were previously not up for discussion and debate are on the table. And so if there are, if, there, if you think there is an opportunity in a window for change, what sorts of things would you like to see us achieve? I have to admit I was optimistic in the first months of the pandemic, much, much less so now. I think um, uh, the US election, which we've just seen, um, uh, certainly indicates that you know, catastrophic failure in the face of the pandemic doesn't carry uh, a huge political price. And in the Australian context, uh, we saw in the early months of the pandemic uh, yeah, the Morrison government, which had, was certainly had no obvious sign of any policy imagination, suddenly doing brave and unprecedented things. Uh, but it's now admitted now very much is look, it's all over. Let's get back to normal. Um, it's hard to tell, of course, because very clearly things aren't back to normal, and the attempts by but yeah, the, the uh, attempts by people to push it back that way have proved disastrously wrong. So so. We'll have to wait and see. I think uh, the extent to which, uh, what you know, how the crisis is resolved, and how much it changes things. But but I must admit, uh, we haven't seen as much change as I would have hoped for uh, from this shock. But I think there have been lots of lessons of things we can do. Uh, one thing it has done, I think, is open up the idea that things don't have to be the way they always have been, and that they're going to change radically in various ways, whether we like it or not. No, I, I think that that's a really uh, apt description of the landscape that we've seen in, in the political discussion uh, of our economic response over the last six months, um, the fluctuating levels of hope and, and distress that I think many of us are, are sharing. Um, 
John Quiggin, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful uh, hearing your thoughts and, and having your expertise take us through a range of economic ideas and principles, both from the 20th and the 21st century. I think you've given us a really wonderful landscape of the things that might be up for discussion and debate over the next couple of series of, of discussions that Sharon and I are planning. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Anna Greta, what did you make of that? That was a really fantastically helpful introduction and in fact much more complex than an introduction. But for me that helps to to map this landscape of, of economic policy. I got a better understanding about how our markets work and the sorts of ways in which we make decisions. But I'm also really struck by some of the imaginative ideas that John Quiggin brings to the table about how we can reimagine the role that economic choice has in our society uh, and the ideas of cha changing particularly that dynamic of, of economic support from a government perspective and the way that that might translate to an improvement in our lives as individuals. How about you, Sharon? What, which, what did you get from this? Yeah, I, I thought that was great. Um, it was just such a great introduction um, for us, Anna Greta, as we think about this. Mm -hmm and um, explore these ideas and hopefully for our listeners too. I guess as, I, as, as I'm listening to John, you know, I'm now starting to think, what are some of the gender implications of the things that, that John was saying? You know, so I think one of the things that we will take forward out of this as we talk to other experts on, on other issues is, um, you know, how, does, how do these issues impact differently perhaps on women and men? How do these issues impact differently on people across different stages of life? You know, and, and how do we, John made some interesting comments about the nature of work as well that I think lead us to some really deep thinking that's needed mm. um, about the nature of work into the future, about issues of precarity, but how we provide people with greater security and greater meaning around mm. their work. Um, John also talked or made a really interesting comment about, you know, sort of a hundred years ago, the focus was all on reducing hours of work and that conversation seems to have been lost. Mm. So how do we reimagine work mm. as we think about some of these big issues? So I am very excited. Absolutely. So we want to talk about work. We're going to talk about gender. He made some amazing uh, observations about this transition from a traditional resource-based economy through to an information economy. And I wonder if that has implications for things like climate change. If we're thinking about the consumption of goods, whether or not we might be able to imagine a world where our economic system is not around the consumption or the, the destruction of the natural environment. Um, I was really fascinated by that and really uh, very much interested to hear the way uh, that we can, can reimagine our social structure around that. Uh, I, I think that's right. And I guess for both of us, Anna Greta, we've been thinking about this series not just about mapping out all the terrible problems that the world is facing. And 2020 has not been the best year for most of the world. But how do we start to think about solutions? Mm. How do we start to think about ways forward and how we really do think about this terrible moment in time as a way of, of thinking not about bouncing back and doing things as we did and repeating all the same mistakes that we've made in the past, but how we take this as an opportunity to think differently and to create a future that is more just, that is more equitable, and as you say, that doesn't destroy the planet. So I think that's where we will be going with our conversations over the next few weeks. Absolutely. It's all about the human future, uh, very much about the human future. So what shall we talk about on our next program? 
We've got a few different ideas that are in the mix here. What do you think we should do next? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of, of you here, Anna Greta. There are a few things that I think we should talk about, but most of our conversations have been around issues of the environment and climate change. What do you say we start there? I think that sounds like a great place to start. And let's see if we can take what we've learned from today. I, I certainly will be and, uh, and find a few people to talk about this with us uh, and see if we can solve the problems of climate change by changing the economic system. We can do, do that can in do an that? hour. Easy. <laughs> so, <laughs> listeners, come on this journey with us. We're going to keep these conversations going over the next few weeks. Please do reach out to us. And if you've got ideas of, of issues that you would like us to weave into this series, please let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or by the old-fashioned email approach, podcast at policyforum.net. But the best way to get in touch with us and to stay in touch with us is to join our Facebook group. If you just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you will find us there. And listeners, please don't forget to leave a, re leave a review. You can subscribe to us through Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. So we will be back next week with another episode in this Wellbeing Economy series. Anna Greta, I'm really looking forward to taking this conversation forward then. Absolutely. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful spending time with you again. Looking forward to next week. It has been fun. So I'll see you then and listeners, join us next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.